first reading this morning is from Isaiah, uh, chapter 11, verses uh, 1 to 6. The branch from Jesse. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will, be deli- he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The second reading is from Proverbs, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Learn what I teach you, my son, and never forget what I tell you to do. Listen to what is wise and try to understand it. Yes, beg for knowledge, plead for insight. Look for it as hard as you would for silver or some hidden treasure. If you do... You will know what it means to fear the Lord, and you will succeed in learning about God. It is the Lord who gives wisdom. From him come knowledge and understanding. He provides help and protection for righteous, honest men. He protects those who treat others fairly and guards those who are devoted to him. If you listen to me, You will know what is right, just, and fair. You will know what you should do. You will become wise, and your knowledge will give you pleasure. Your insight and understanding will protect you. Hallelujah. Good morning again. uh, Should we have the word? Let's, uh, let's see if we can't grow. The two readings this morning, um, they're, they're not specifically what the word's about this morning. Other than, in both of them, wisdom's mentioned. And God's telling us, isn't he, that we need to get wisdom. We've got to be wise. We need to grow. And hopefully that's what we're here for this morning. Hopefully we can grow a little bit. Um, the two biggest rivers in the world. Anyone know what they are? The two biggest rivers in the world. The, Am- the Amazon, yeah. Do you, anyone know what the other one is? 
the Nile. Yep, yep, the two biggest. Now, we're not sure what, uh, apparently there's debate over which is the biggest, but it's one of those two. They're both roughly the same size, yep. Has anyone seen, anyone ever been down them? Anyone in a, ever travelled along the Nile or the Amazon? Yeah? Near the end, where, the, where is it is widest? Through Egypt. They're massive, aren't they? I mean, a, f- a few miles wide. We're not, it's not, we're not looking at a river, a river like the Mersier, are we? It's, uh, it's a lot bigger than that. We're, we're talking a river that runs for tens of miles, if not hundreds of miles. And a uh, massive, massive river. And, but at, it, at its end, if you wanted to redirect that river and you wanted it to go in a different direction, could you imagine the amount of work that would be needed to change the flow of that river, what you'd have to do? We'd be talking huge, huge amounts of work. It's big enough just to build a bridge over the river at its widest point. But if you wanted to redirect that river, say it was in the way you wanted to build a nice big house in a state, or Egypt suddenly decided they were going to build a new palace for, you know, for the latest pharaoh or whoever is in charge of Egypt, the king of Egypt, whatever it is at the moment, it'd be a huge job, wouldn't it? But if you go back to the source of that river, a little child could put its foot down and redirect the flow of either of those two rivers. And one of the things I want you to have in mind this morning is don't think that your influence is small. It's really easy in life, isn't it? We all do it to think, oh, it's just me, and, you know, and I just do this. And we all kind of say it in our daily talk about ourselves, don't we? When we start a new work off, we say, oh, well, it's just us, but, you know, we'll do our best and we'll see how it goes and, you know, and so on. Listen, let me tell you, God says to despise not the small beginnings because God rejoices to see the work begin. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, beginnings of work. Um, Have you all heard of a guy called uh, Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi? Yeah. Apparently, I don't know if you know this, but but, uh, Gandhi, he's not a Christian, um, a, um, a Muslim Gandhi or a Buddhist, sorry, not a Muslim, a Buddhist Gandhi. But uh, in, in his early days, before he turned to uh, Buddhism, or he started Buddhism, Buddhism, whatever it was, he actually went to a Christian church in South Africa. He was, he'd read the works of Jesus and was really interested in his teachings, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. And on his way up into the church, uh, he got to the church steps, and he was asked on the church steps, what are you doing here? Why have you turned up? And his response was, well, I'd like to worship. I want to come and worship with your people. I've heard of the teachings of Jesus, and I was really impressed with them, and I'd like to come and worship and join in the service. And the elder in the church snarled at him, and his response was, where do you think you're going, Kaffir? The man said to Gandhi again, there's no room for your kind in this church. Get out of here, or I'll have my assistants throw you down the steps. At that moment, Gandhi said, and this was in an interview years later with a guy called E. Stanley Jones, he said he decided to never adopt, uh, sorry, to never join a Christian church. He said he was willing to adopt the principles of Christianity, the Jesus of teachings, because he was impressed by them, but he said he'd never wanted to be part of a Christian church. Small beginnings. That could have been so different, couldn't it? If that response had been different, if Gandhi had been... I mean, what Gandhi did was massive, wouldn't it? Could you imagine if he'd have done that for Christianity? Could have been a huge change, couldn't it? Small beginnings are so important. guy called Zerubbabel. Anyone heard of Zerubbabel in the Old Testament? Anyone who's heard the Old Testament will know Zerubbabel. His name 
is actually in two parts. It means apparently Zerub Babel. Zerub meaning Zeru, um, Zach- uh, sorry, uh, uh, not a part of or a stranger in, sorry. Zerub meaning stranger and Babel meaning Babylon. The idea meaning that his name meant he was a stranger in Babylon. And the history to Zerubbabel is that he lived in a time when God's people met the kind of the wrath of God. God's people have been really, really blessed up to this point. We'd had, you've all heard of kind of Moses and Abraham and the promises. And so God had given Abraham these promises about the people and how he was going to bless this nation and make a nice, mighty nation out of Abraham. So what did God do? Uh, through Mo, God, God made this great nation and then through Moses, he released them from captivity, did a great mighty hand of work at God. This huge nation of Egypt, the biggest nation at the time, God caused them to defeat that nation. They left with all the spoils of Egypt. They started their own nation off. They destroyed all the other lands. They had this wonderful homeland. God prospered them. He made them great. And over the years and over the years, he made them awesome to the point that you've got King David and then his son Solomon building a wonderful, massive temple for God. Huge, wonderful, splendorous temple that he built for them. And this temple was so great. You've got to remember, Solomon in his day was the wealthiest man on the planet. The queen of Sheba came to see him and other kings and queens because he was so great and he was so awesome. And all his might and all his work and all the preparations of his father before him, King David, went into building this wonderful, beautiful temple. And on and on and on, years afterwards, we had all these kings following, but the way started to kind of go and they started to do things they shouldn't do and they started to worship in false gods and God warned them and said if you keep worshiping false gods I'm going to come and I'm going to put a wrath on your nation and I'm going to send you into captivity for 70 years and they were warned and they were warned and they were warned until eventually it happened and the nation was taken off so you've got this wonderful splendid nation they were the pride of the whole world in the day And all of a sudden, it's all turned round, and you've got this foreign heathen nation, these kind of infidels, if you like, would have been the perhaps word for them almost, these people that didn't worship God, who came and destroyed them and took them all off to captivity. Babylon, sorry, Zerubbabel was around in that time. And Zerubbabel had a call from God, because what happened was God told them that they would be in captivity for 70 years. But he also said to them, when they leave captivity, he said he will bring them back out. It'll only be for a time, for 70 years, but when they leave captivity, he'll bring them back into their own land, and there they'll rebuild the temple, and worship will start again. So what happened? If you've got your Bibles with you, can you turn to... Uh, Haggai chapter 1 please if you've not don't worry I'll read it to you Haggai 1 verses 12 to 15 we're going to read from verse 12 I'm reading from the New Living Translation so it might read slightly different to the New King James it says then Zerubbabel son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest And the whole remnant of God's people began to obey the message from the Lord their God. When they heard the words of the prophet Haggai, whom the Lord their God had sent, the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, 
gave the people this message from the Lord, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord sparked the enthusiasm of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and the enthusiasm of Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the enthusiasm of the whole remnant of God's people. They began rebuilding the house of their God, the Lord of Heaven's armies, on September the 21st of the second year of King Darius's reign. You see, what happened before this, something happened before this. The people returned to their own land. And there's a, a key word in this. It says, I think it might be on the page before, it says the remnant, the high priest and the whole remnant of God's people. You see, I want to try and get, let's get it in our heads what was going on at that time and just try and have a picture in our minds of what was going on at that time. We'd had this wonderful great nation, the pride of all the earth, but then they come back from captivity and at that time, the only reason they came back from captivity, it wasn't from a mighty hand of God like it was when they left Egypt. This return from captivity was because the king of Babylon said they could. Because the king of Babylon said they could. And he said, okay, I'll let you go. It wasn't because God did any mighty work. God was behind it. God caused him to. God made it. But it wasn't so obvious. It wasn't like in the early days when they left Egypt. And when they got back, the thing is the whole people didn't return. It was only a few people that returned back from, uh, Zerubbab- um, from uh, Babylon. Most of them stayed in Babylon. And the people that returned were a remnant. And now a remnant, if you look up at the word remnant, we hear it so often. What it means is, it's kind of, to give you a picture of what a remnant is, imagine you've had a wonderful meal, you've invited all your friends round, and you've put this great feast on. You ever done that? You have a few people round, you do a buffet, that kind of stuff. And then it gets to the end of the night, and what's left... All the kind of, the scraps, isn't it, of the food. And you might kind of save it for the leftovers the next day if there's a lot left. If there's only a few little bits left, you'll kind of scrape it all off and you'll put it in the bin and you do the dishes at the end of the night. But that's what a remnant is. It's the bit that's left, isn't it? Or imagine a kind of, a, a, a cloth maker. And they have this wonderful piece of leather. A quality piece of leather and they decide they're going to make a coat out of it. So what do they do? They cut it up and they get all the bits that they need for the arms and the back and the jacket and all that kind of stuff. And then the bits that's left, they throw away. That's the remnant. That's what a remnant is. It's the scraps. It's the bit that's left over. It's the bit that the other people didn't want. That's what these people were called at the time. This wasn't a great and mighty nation coming back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. This was the kind of scraps of a once great nation. And what happened, when they originally returned, they started to rebuild the temple straight away. And it was wonderful. It was great. When they'd finished the foundations, they had a a big ceremony. And the people who'd been there and seen the original temple, they wept because they saw the original temple and how wonderful that was. And all of a sudden they could see this new temple that they were building and how small it was in comparison and how tiny it was and they wept when they saw it. But there wasn't just the weeping, that was the old people who'd seen the original one. The young people were rejoicing, there was dancing going on and everything. So it all looked really good, but suddenly the it problems The other nations that were surrounded them, they hated, they hated the Hebrews. They couldn't stand them. So they started coming in. 
in little raiding parties and they started coming in and stealing the crops and setting fire to the crops and breaking into people's houses and killing people and doing things like that. And they started struggling to make food. And then the people started thinking to themselves, hold on, we're building God's temple, but we've not sorted out our own houses yet. Let's go and make sure our own houses are great. So they started to build their own houses. And then they started to worry about security because these other nations were coming in and attacking them. So they started to think, we better make sure we've got guards uh, kind of patrolling. We better make sure we've got fences up and we better start looking after ourselves. And what happened was the people left the temple and the temple was just left the foundation got built and nothing else was done and then this prophecy came from Haggai to Zerubbabel and basically what he's saying to Zerubbabel here is he's saying to him Zerubbabel the people they're not doing what I told them to do they were told to rebuild the temple and they're not doing it speak to them tell them Go and tell them Zerubbabel, they must rebuild the temple. And do you know what? There's parallels with our nation at the moment. Any older people in the congregation will perhaps remember a day when more people went to church on a Sunday, when the shops weren't open on a Sunday, when it was that the church bells could be rang all around our nation. They will remember a day that when you went out on a Sunday, the people that you saw driving around weren't going off to Tesco to do the shopping or down to B&Q Warehouse to go and sort out a new lawnmower so they can cut the grass. What they were all doing is the people you saw on a Sunday were all going to church. We were a once great Christian nation. We were a nation that spread the gospel to the whole world. Yeah, we did some other bad things as well, but there were many good things done. We were a nation that had churches all over the place, all over the land. We were a nation that when we went to war in, the, in World War II, the king called this nation to prayer because we were in trouble. Some people might remember that. The king calling the nation to prayer. Could you imagine that happening today? Could you imagine Gordon Brown stepping up and saying, uh, can we join together for prayer, this war in Iraq and the war in, um, uh, what's the other country? Afghanistan, sorry. And the war in Afghanistan, it's not going too well and we're struggling. Let's pray. Let's all go to church this Sunday and pray. Could you imagine that? Just wouldn't happen, would it? Do you notice on a Sunday, that on a Sunday morning when you come into church, there's not many people about, are there? It's quite quiet. We're kind of used to that, aren't we? It's been, it's been like that for years and years and years. Because we normally come before the shops open, don't we? When really, if you think about it, a Sunday should be like a, a Wednesday or a Thursday or a Friday. You know, when you're travelling to work on a Wednesday and it's really busy and there's traffic jams and you've got to leave early to get to where you're going because there's that many people. If you think about it, a Sunday should be like that, shouldn't it? There should be traffic jams on a Sunday to get to church. There should be that many people going to church. Do you know what we are? We're a remnant. We're a remnant. We're what's left of what was a once great Christian nation. We're what was left of it. Haggai chapter 2, just turn to that for me, verse 1. You see, God's gracious, isn't he? And you can understand, can't you, the people, you know, the, the, the small in number, the weak we feel like that sometimes as the Church of Christ, don't we? We feel small in number, we feel weak when the council are coming against us or we're wanting to do stuff and we're not getting permission and all this kind of thing. We feel small in number, we feel weak. And they were at the time. And what happened was, though, they started looking inwardly. 
They started looking inwardly. They started kind of looking at themselves and making sure they'd sorted out themselves. And Haggai 2 verses 1 to 4 say, Then on October the 17th of the same year, the Lord sent another message through the prophet Haggai. Say this to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of God's people there in the land. Does anyone remember this house, this temple, in its former splendor? Anyone in here remember this nation in former days when it was a Christian nation? How in comparison does it look to you now? There can't be many people left who remember what this nation was like when it was a Christian nation. But how does it look now? It must seem like nothing at all. But now the Lord says, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people still left in the land. And now get to work. For I'm with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. And chapter 2, verse 23 says, But when this happens, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will honor you, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, my servant. I'll make you like a signet ring on my finger says the Lord, for I've chosen you, I, the Lord of heaven's armies, have spoken. You see, all the people were concerned about themselves, and you can kind of understand it, can't you? When you're feeling weak, you become insular, you become inward thinking, you start to protect yourselves when jobs are, you're struggling for finance and that kind of thing. But Zerubbabel was different, and God knew that Zerubbabel was different, because Zerubbabel wasn't concerned about himself. Zerubbabel was concerned about two things. Zerubbabel was concerned about what God had said happening, that the temple was rebuilt, and Zerubbabel was concerned about everyone else. He was concerned about the people and making sure that they followed God and they did what God wanted them to, wanted them to do. And think about this, what God's saying to you. God's honouring Zerubbabel here. Zerubbabel's of the line of David. And God's reminding him here. He's going to put a signet ring on his finger. God gave wonderful promises to David that all his descendants will be of the line of the coming king, who's Christ that we know. Are you alive this morning? Are you alive? What do you think? Do you think you're alive this morning? Yeah? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I'm not saying you're not. I'm not saying you don't look like you're alive. I just throw that in, like, you know. But uh, it was alive in the worship, definitely. You could hear the worship was wonderful, really great worship. Can I ask you a question? How do you know you're alive? How do you know you're alive? Breathe. You breathe. Yeah, true. You breathe, all right, that's a good point. You breathe. I'm thinking more than just kind of, you know, that uh, I am, therefore, I, what is it? I think, therefore, I am, that kind of thing. I'm not so much thinking about the fact that we walk around, although that's a good answer. We do know we're alive because of that, because we're kind of breathing. But I'm thinking more than alive, because you can be alive and be breathing and be dead, can't you? You know, if you're kind of just doing nothing with your life and you just kind of, you know, you've got nothing about you, you've got no life to you, and things aren't going anywhere, and you're feeling like, I'm not really doing much, my life's a bit insignificant, and you're feeling a bit, you know. I'm thinking about the kind of life that Jesus said when he said, I've come to give you a life more abundantly. I've come to give you an abundant life. 
a great life, a life of purpose, a wonderful, you know, a life where you're doing something with your life, a life where you know that you're alive because you can kind of feel it in your bones, you know. How do you know you're alive? How is it? Is it because you're saved? That might tell you you're alive, mightn't it? That might say that you're alive because you kind of, you know, you've got a bit of a purpose in your life. Is it because of that? Is it because you've got a purpose? God spoke to you. He's put you in the praise and worship team. Or he's put you in the kids' church. Or he's given you a kind of evangelistic heart and you're going off out, you know, uh, ministering. You're doing some youth work. Is it because of that? Is that how you know you're alive? Is it because you've got peace in your life? Is it because you've got peace? Could be that, couldn't it? Is it because you've got the joy of the Holy Ghost in your life? The joy of the Lord's our strength, the word says, doesn't it? There's definitely joy here this morning. We, we, you know, you're coming in and there's laughing and there's joking. It's great how it should be in church, isn't it? We should be alive, we should be smiling, we should be happy. Why is it? How do we know we're alive? 1 John 3, verse 14. This is how you know you're alive. You don't need to turn to it. I'll read this to you. It's up on the, on the board if you want to have a look at it. It says, the way that we know that we've been transferred from death to to life. You see, God's saying here, isn't he? Jesus is saying that actually, this is, how do you know you've been transferred from death to life? So you can be alive, but dead. You know what I'm on about, don't you? The way you know you've been transferred from death to life is what? Is that we love our brothers and sisters. Didn't see that one coming. You wouldn't think it was that, would you? Anyone who doesn't love is as good as dead. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know very well that eternal life and murder don't go together. Strong words, them, aren't they? This is how we've come to... ...his life for us. This is why we ought to live sacrificially for our fellow believers, and not just be out for ourselves. If you see a brother or sister in need, nothing about it, but you turn a cold shoulder and you do nothing... What happens to God's love? It disappears and you made it disappear. See, what I want to look at this morning is, are you alive and do you know you're alive? And the word says that we know we're alive when we're loving our brothers and sisters. And if we've not got that love for our brothers and sisters in our hearts, if we're not kind of wanting to come and help people out and do things for people and bless people and encourage people and all those things, then we're not alive. We're dead. We're actually alive, but we're dead. And I don't want you to kind of, this is a very personal word. You remember the Pharisees? Anyone who's read the, the New Testament? Loads and loads of stuff about the Pharisees. These kind of people. And the Pharisees at the time were the kind of people of the day that looked like they were alive. I'll tell you why. The Pharisees were going round preaching to all the people about what they should and shouldn't do. The Pharisees knew God's word inside and out, every little bit of it, and they told the people all about it. The Pharisees, when the offering basket came round, used to get out wads of tens and twenties, kind of modern day equivalents, and throw it in for everyone to see. The Pharisees were the ones that used to stand on the, on the street corners in the day, because this was a real kind of godly nation at the time, or they had the, the, the perception of a godly nation at the time, and say these wonderful ornate prayers that went on for 10 minutes, and everyone was there in awe of them, like, wow, they can really pray, and aren't they wonderful? 
And you know what the biggest thing about the Pharisees was? Everyone else thought that they were great. All the people of the day thought the Pharisees were great. We don't think of him like that now, do we? Because we know that Jesus kind of was quite critical of the Pharisees, to put it mildly. But the people of the day thought the Pharisees were great. They thought these were wonderful people. They looked up to these people as great, godly people. If you'd have asked the people in the day, who's the people who were really alive? Who were doing it? Who were the ones? They would have said, oh, the Pharisees, they know it. They're the ones. They're throwing the wads of money in. They're praying. They're doing stuff. They're telling us all what to do. They know God's word and everything. Were the Pharisees alive? No, definitely not. The Pharisees were horrible, nasty people. You're right, they weren't. They were dead. The Pharisees were horrible, horrible, nasty people. Jesus said about them, in fact, he called them whitewashed tombs, didn't he? He said, you're basically like, like a, a tomb that's been painted white, so it looks like it's alive and it's great, but inside it's dead. Absolutely dead. And what I'm trying to get at here is, I don't want to, you don't sit there kind of thinking, oh, you know, people are going to be looking at me and thinking I'm not very loving and I don't come into church kind of, you know, being dead nice to everyone and the life and soul and giving high fives to everyone and seeing all this kind of stuff and I'm quite subdued and I'm quite quiet. You see, loving people and, and being alive and doing it the way God wants to do it, it's not something that you can look at someone else and say, oh, they are, or they aren't, or anything like that. It's something very kind of personal. It's something that really you only actually know inside, because the Pharisees had that look of being alive about them. They had that look, and everyone was fooled by it. Everyone thought that they were alive, and they were the people to follow, but inside they were dead, and they were really dead, and they weren't the people to follow. So what I want to say to you this morning is I want to try and look at, I want to bring out a couple of key points about how we know if we're alive or not, and what we should be doing if we're alive. But don't be sitting there feeling condemned, thinking, oh, everyone's going to look at me, thinking, he don't do that. Because it's very personal. Only you know. There's only really two people that know whether you're alive, and that's you and God. We can all give that appearance of being friendly, can't we? We can all do it, can't we? We can all pretend to like someone and all that kind of stuff, can't we? But what should we be doing? Matthew 24, verse 12. You don't need to turn for it. Matthew 24, verse 12 says that the love of many will grow cold. So what he's saying is, he's saying that people could have loved God... And he could have loved the brothers and sisters, but in the last days, that's going to grow cold. And what I want to say to you this morning is, loving people ain't something about something that you did once many, many years ago. It's not something that you did one day. It's something that has to be current. It's got to be that we're constantly loving people. It's got to be that we're, we're, we're constantly coming into church and making sure that we're, we're being friendly to people and stuff like that. Matthew 5, verse 46, if we can bring that up, says... For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. Who's ever done the classic cake cut in the kitchen? You know when there's a bit of cake left and, uh, and you've got to kind of cut it up and you go into the kitchen to cut it and you cut it and there's two pieces and one slightly bigger than the other. And you kind of keep the bit slightly biggest piece for yourself and you give the other person that, you know what I mean, ever done that? We've all done it at some point, haven't we? Let's be honest about it. We've all done that, haven't we? All the smirks are telling me. You can tell the people who do that, they've all got a smirk on their faces, you know what I mean? All them guilty conscious, oh, yeah, I did that the other day. <laughs> Cut the cake up and you keep the best bit for yourself. But it's not really about that, is it? What it is, it's about kind of making sure that we give the best bit to someone else, isn't it? 
That's what it's about, isn't it? Oh, guilty faces. I've done that. I've done it. We've all done it, haven't we? Matthew 22, verses 35 to 40. If we can bring them up. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question Jesus is talking about. This was one of the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus. He hated Jesus. And he said to Jesus, he said, Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied with this. He said, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. That's what Zerubbabel was doing. He wanted to make sure that God's temple was rebuilt because he loved God. And he says, A second is equally important. So if the first one is the most important, actually if the second is equally important, then it's just as important, isn't it? And the second is this, love your neighbour as yourself. Don't keep the best bit of cake for yourself. Think about the bit that you give for yourself and give it to your neighbour. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. We've got to be loving each other. We've got to be. Have you got a heart for evangelism in this church? Yeah? I believe you have. I've looked on the website. I've, you know, done a bit of work with Andrew and, and, and I've come here a few times and I hear about the stuff you're doing. I know a couple of you and getting to know a couple of you and stuff like that. You know, when I say you've got, a work for, you've got a heart for evangelism, you want to see people saved. You want to grow the church. Yeah? You want to see people coming in. Yeah? Would you agree? Definitely. Yeah? Let me tell you this. This is so important. Do you know what the world's looking for? People who come into church. What they're looking for is grace. They're looking for grace. Because you know when a person who, who you want to, when, you, when you've got a heart for evangelism, you want the kind of guy down the road who's never been to church to come next Sunday morning, don't you? You'd all be made up if he turned up next Sunday morning. But what you've got to think about is that guy down the road who doesn't normally go to church and who's thinking about calling to see you on Sunday morning. When he comes into church on a Sunday morning, he's probably going to be feeling quite guilty. Because if he's kind of coming to church, he's coming because he thinks he should be. And he's got in the back of his mind that I don't normally come. And, and here I am coming this morning, but I'm feeling really guilty because I've not been coming for the last 20 years and I should have been. So he's feeling a bit negative, really, and he's coming and he's a bit sheepish, and he kind of sits at the back, and he's feeling a bit guilty. And do you know what he's looking for? He's looking for grace. He's looking for someone to kind of go and put an arm around him and say, do you know, Bill, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you've not been coming for the last 20 years, because God loves you just the same. And do you know what? He's made up that you've come today. He's made up that you've come today. And do you know what that is? It's grace, because he doesn't deserve it, does he? What he deserves is, he deserves the church going and knocking on his door and telling him he's going to be going to hell because he doesn't go to church. That's what he deserves, isn't it? Bill, you're going to hell because you, shouldn't, you should be going to church and you don't go. That's what he deserves. But grace, which is the higher law, which is what God's got for us, is that when he comes, we're all just so made up that he's come and God's made up that he's come. And that's what people are looking for. That's what will bring them back. That's what will bring people back. That's the love of God, isn't it? That saves people. The love of God that brings people to church. But, 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 as important as that is, do you know what's more important than that? 
You'd say, wouldn't you, that it's one of the most important things that the church should be doing today is evangelism and trying to get people saved and trying to tell them the message, yeah? One of the most important things that the church can be doing today. We'd all agree on that. There's something that's even more important than that, and that's that we're loving each other in the church. That's that everyone in this church is loving each other first. You've got to be loving each other first. I know how important it is, evangelism, and I wouldn't belittle that in any way, shape, or form. But let me tell you, if you sat here this morning and you're thinking, maybe I don't quite love each other in the church as I should be doing. Maybe I'm not quite going out of my way to love people as I should be doing. Sort that out first. Sort that out first. Get that bit right first. Make sure that you're loving everyone in the church. John 13, verses 34 to 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I've loved you, that you also love one another. And here's why we should be loving each other first. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. So when Bill down the road comes in next Sunday morning and he's thinking, are these people really Christians? Do they know God? Is this the place I should be coming? And he comes in and he sees that you're all loving each other and that there's a real lovely atmosphere in here and that you're all making sure that you're going out of your way for each other and that kind of thing. Bill knows that, yeah, this is it. This is love. This is what I should be coming for. And then you can love him, can't you? And then you can show him that, hey, listen, Bill, we love you. We love you. Don't matter that you've not been for the last 20 years. Doesn't matter about that. Romans 12, verses 9 to 18, says, Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Really love them. We can all put on a good show, can't we, like the Pharisees. Hate what's wrong and hold tightly to what's good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honouring each other. That honour is a wonderful thing. That's to kind of pay respects to each other, isn't it? It's to, when people come in, to, to honour is to pay respect to them, to show them that you love them. And it's not just something that you do in your head, it's an action, isn't it? It's actually to do something. Romans 13 verse 8 says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. It's a debt to love each other. Do you realise that? It's a debt to love each other. If you've not shown your love for each other this morning, then you owe each other money. It's a bit like owing them money, isn't it? You owe them something that you've not done. Romans 13.10 says, Love does no harm to a a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilment of the law. 1 Peter 4 verse 8 says, this is a great one. Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. You know that word fervent? When I was kind of looking into this, and I thought, okay, we're meant to have fervent love. What's fervent love? What does that mean? So I looked it up, and in the Oxford Dictionary, the word fervent, it says it means glowing kind of glowing that makes sense doesn't it we're meant to be kind of lights on a hill and all that kind of stuff yeah and then I thought glowing what does it mean by glowing in what way what type of glowing should we have 
And then if you look up the word glowing in the Oxford Dictionary, it says um, glowing actually means to express great praise. It's in the Oxford Dictionary. I wouldn't have thought that. Anyone else thought the word glowing meant praise? Oxford Dictionary, glowing means, it, this is what it says. It says, uh, it says glowing actually means to express great praise. So could it be that when we're loving one another, when we're going out of our way for each other, that actually that's worship? just as much as when we're singing the songs at the beginning of church, that when we're kind of, you know, seeing a brother in need and we're going and helping him, or we know that someone can't get out the house, so we're going round and we're taking them something to eat, or we're opening our house up and we're having people round, or we know someone who's, who's, just, who's new to the church and they've not got many friends, so we go out of our way to have them round so that we can kind of, you know, show them friendship and, you know, and we're being a friend to them so that they're not lonely. Could it be that when we're doing all those things that actually that's praise. And that's what one of the things that God meant to do when he said to praise him. I think it could. Do you know, there's, I could go on all morning, but I wouldn't get invited back again. Because there's hundreds of scriptures on love. There's hundreds of them. In fact, I don't know, I've been going on quite a bit. Maybe, maybe I'm treading that line anyway, I don't know. There's hundreds, hundreds of scriptures on love. But let's bring it to a close. 1 Thessalonians verses chapter 3. Verse 11 to 13. If you've got your Bibles with you, turn to this one. This is a good one, this. It says, Now, may our God and Father, Himself, and our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way to you. And may the Lord, this is Paul thinking, speaking to the Thessalonian church that he set up, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. Notice it's there again, isn't it? Paul's telling the church, abound in love to one another and to all. In other words, love each other first and then the rest of the world. Each other first and then the rest of the world. Just as we do to you, Paul loved that church. Verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. This is a prayer, folks. Paul's praying a prayer here. He's praying when he says, and may the Lord. This is a prayer, this is a request to God. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you and a couple of things about this he says that you he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before your god if you want to have a clear conscience before god then you've got to have love in your heart and if you've got love in your heart and you're loving one another then you'll have a clear heart before god and you'll have a clear conscience and you'll be blameless before god but not only that, holiness as well before God. You see, righteousness, you have that already. If you've named the name of Christ, if you've become a Christian, then the word says that you are righteous. You're a righteous person. You have that already. You may not feel it some days, but believe me, you are righteous because God's put a robe of righteousness on you and it covers your sins. 
But holiness is something different, isn't it? That's what we all aspire to. That's what we want to be. We want to be more like Jesus. That's what we should be doing. If you don't want to be, let me tell you, you should be. If you don't want to be holy, you should be holy. It's what we should all be aspiring to. It's what God wants from us, us to be more holy, more like him. That's all it means, just being like him, being like him. But it says here that when you've got love in your heart towards one another, then you become holy before God. And the final thing about this in Thessalonians is that it's a prayer. It's a prayer because Paul knew that if you've not got love in your heart, if you're struggling to love your brothers and sisters, if you're struggling to show that love for them, then it's not a head problem. It's not a problem that you can solve in your head by reading or by kind of figuring it out or by trying to work it out. It's a heart problem. If you've not got love, it's a heart problem. And the only thing that cures heart problems is God and prayer. And that's why he was praying for the Thessalonian church. And it's grace. It's grace. Because Do we deserve God to do anything for us? Do we? No, we don't. There's nothing righteous about us, is there, apart from that robe that he's put round us. It's the only thing that makes us righteous on our own, we're not, are we? But, 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 grace, 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 grace. We pray for grace, don't we? Not because we deserve it. We don't pray to God to make us better or to give us love in our hearts because we deserve it. We pray because of grace, that God loves us, do it because he loves us. Should we pray? Should we pray? I just want to say a simple prayer for you this morning. And, you know, if you want more prayer, because this is one of the most important things that there is, to be loving each other. It's so important to have that love in your heart, to want to do things for each other, to have that love. You know, come and see the prayer ministry team after the, after, the, after the word, after the meeting. If you don't know who they are, see one of the elders or myself and we'll point you to the right direction if you're new to church this morning. But come and see. If you want prayer this morning, come and see the prayer ministry team. Let's just say a simple prayer. Lord, I just pray, Lord, for your blessing, Lord, upon this church. Lord, we think upon, Lord, how, uh, Lord, how little, Lord, we can seem, Lord, today, Lord, in this day and age. Lord, we're so small, Lord, when most people don't go to church and don't go to join a, join a church, Lord. And we feel so insignificant sometimes, Lord, as it's just us trying to do a work and so big. Lord, but we know, Lord, that you've told us, Lord, that you don't despise the small beginnings. Lord, but you rejoice, Lord, to see a work begin. Lord, and you say, Lord, it's not by might or by power, Lord, but it's by your spirit, Lord, that the job gets done. Lord, that's the mighty thing. Lord, so I want to pray for this church, Lord. I want to pray for, Lord, your body of people, Lord, your light, Lord, in this area of Warrington, Lord, that you would bless, Lord, their work, Lord, that you bless what they're doing, Lord. But, Lord, just even before that, Lord, Lord, just bless us more, Lord, with love. Lord, just as Paul prayed, Lord, for that Thessalonian church, Lord, help us, Lord, to increase in love, Lord. Because none of us, Lord, are there yet, Lord. None of us have have reached that point, Lord, where we're perfect, Lord, where we have complete love, Lord, for everybody. Lord, but how we, Lord, need to be working and getting to it, Lord. How we need to be being transformed, Lord, into your image. Lord, 
touch our hearts again afresh this morning, Lord, I pray. Lord, put that love into us, Lord, I pray. Lord, do it, Lord. Do it for us, Lord, we pray. Lord, by grace, not because we deserve it, Lord, but just because you love us. And everybody said, Amen.